coming up on the Magical Medical Tour with my co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and special guest, Dr. Mary Louise Scully, an infectious disease, travel, and tropical medicine specialist, sharing with us information on the Zika virus, how it's spreading globally, what are the symptoms, and the surprise, what about sexual contact? This and more is coming up next on Magical Medical Tour. This week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Woolman, and I will be your medical guide, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, each week exploring another portion of the world of optimal health. Mm -hmm. And today, episode 153, we're going to be speaking with a returning guest, Dr. Mary Louise Scully, who's an infectious disease, travel, and tropical medicine specialist. We were with her once before on episode 29. So we're looking forward to that, and we're going to today talk about the Zika virus, which mm -hmm. is on everyone's mind. That's so, it. Christina, if anyone has any questions about Zika... Yes, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, you can do this at any time. It could be a month from now, a year from now, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. Um, or if you are listening to this through a podcast or any of your devices, feel free to give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you very much, Doc. You're quite welcome. So today, as I said, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mary Louise Scully. She is an infectious disease specialist, also travel and tropical medicine. And I need to be transparent and say that uh, Dr. Scully was uh, very important in my travels through Africa and malaria-infested areas and uh, Turkey. And she got me through it without any problems. But you're so still wearing your hat. Well, I'm on safari today. <laughs> I'll yeah. have to remember mine next time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce and re-welcome Dr. Mary Louise Scully. Welcome, Mary Louise. Hello, Happy Dr. Scully. Here. Hello. <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> I like the hat, Glenn. Thank you very much. I thought you inspired very me today. <laughs> yeah, you inspired me. Uh, episode 29, and this is episode 153. Legacy. Yeah. Has anything <laughs> anything happened to you in, in between? Uh, Zika. Zika. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> so, from People a distance. in between, too, actually, come to think of it, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's right. So, business, is, I, business is good for infectious disease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're always hoping for epidemics and viruses and plagues. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole different specialty. Oh, like, my. <laughs> everyone else in the world goes, oh, no, the plague. You go, yes. <laughs> yes. Where is it? <laughs> where can is I it? go where, help? <laughs> yes. Where can I send all my friends there so I can treat them? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Okay. So now I wasn't thinking clearly with the hat on. <laughs> so no. I, I want to really get into this on many levels and figure out things that our audience and global viewers can uh, take away from this to protect themselves from this virus. But before we talk about the Zika virus, I'd really like you to give us an introductory one-minute to two-minute course on what a virus is. We actually started our very first show with a partner of yours, Stephen Hosea, uh, and the title of that show was Predators. And we talked about all the predators out there, the viruses, the parasites, the bacteria, things like that. 
But I want to remind our viewers about viruses. So tell us a little bit about viruses. Well, there are smallest uh, infectious agents, usually just a little piece of DNA or RNA, uh, often with a protein coat, um, and they cannot do things on their own. Basically, they need a cell, so they get inside a cell to replicate and make more of themselves. Of course, uh, as they make more of themselves, they usually then destroy the cell, get released to then go out and infect more cells. Um, so they, um, in the midst of it, uh, cause quite a bit of damage. Um, while we're fighting these viruses, of course, our immune system uh, sends out uh, inflammatory mediators that make us feel sick, fever, chills, flu-like symptoms, as we talk about. Um, so yes, there and there's many, many viruses. Um, I think one point you asked me, is there such a thing as a good virus? But we don't really think of viruses as being good, um, though we they are used for gene therapy these days. And we probably don't know, you know, we talk about the gut microbiome. Maybe there are viruses that are good for us, uh, but we tend to think about viruses like the flu or Ebola uh, and Zika as making us sick. Um, but, you know, again, that's humans. So viruses might be in certain species and not at all be bothering them, but then there's what we call a spillover event where that virus that wasn't causing harm in one species, like perhaps a monkey, uh, gets into a human and that's not good and the, that that species does get sick so so viruses are quite challenging and we don't so there's lots of debate on whether a virus is uh, an organism or not right mm. or yeah, I mean, because it does it does need uh, a cell, a host cell, to replicate, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to a bacteria. You know that um, you know you've seen us with the blood culture media. The media you can spread uh, bacteria out, and strep will make more of itself. Um, but a virus does need a cell uh, to infect a cell. Um, but there's certainly. Um, are alive and well as far as I can tell. <laughs> right. <laughs> Business is flourishing. <laughs> okay, so let's let's move into the Zika virus. Uh, this is in the news all the time right now, and we had the Olympics, and everyone was concerned about that before the Olympics. Uh, but the, the Zika virus, it's been around for a while. It's been around for around 50 years or more, hasn't it? Exactly, yeah. So the Zika virus was first described actually in Uganda, the Zika forest um, that was near Entebbe on Lake Victoria. Uh, and it was actually a group of researchers that were working on yellow fever uh, virus um, that isolated a, a brand new novel virus uh, and they named it Zika. Um, didn't that, but that was isolated from a monkey. Um, and we didn't see any more of it. The first human case wasn't described until maybe about 1954 in Nigeria, in West Africa. Um, and then there's definitely, in retrospect, looking back, there there was the virus was present in equatorial Africa and then moved on to Asia. But it certainly wasn't causing any of the epidemic illness like we're seeing now. Some of this um, information comes from what we call sero-surveys, when they went back and checked people's blood and indeed found that they had been exposed to the virus. Uh, but the big surprise was then in 2007 uh, on Yap uh, Island in Micronesia, there was a big outbreak, about 900 cases, which actually represented about 73% of the population of YAP at that time. Wow. So that was a big surprise. Um, and then from there, French Polynesia in about 2013, um, and it kind of hopped its way through some of the Pacific Islands. Um, and then the big jump was in uh, 2014 to that northeastern part of Brazil, Bahia, um, where it was first described by um, who, a group of uh, doctors who actually thought people had, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but we thought people had maybe dengue virus uh, or another one called chikungunya. But when they tested the people, neither of those viruses were present. And that's when they discovered this was Zika, which was a big surprise. Um, from there, it pretty much took off, went up 
through other parts of Brazil, other parts of uh, South America. Colombia got hit pretty hard, right on into Central America and then to the Caribbean. And pretty much if you look at the new CDC maps, basically the whole area um, is a Zika potential area. And then the big surprise was, well, not surprise, we did predict it, but we have had some small amount of local cases in Florida. Um, but again, the big epicenter of the outbreak has been Brazil, which has been hit extremely hard. You know, we speaking of Brazil, and we mentioned the Olympics. Uh, everyone was worried about that. Many people decided not to go of because of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And the CDC chimed in. World Health Organization chimed in. Uh, do you have any statistics on actual problems that occurred during the Olympics? I mean, I never heard one episode of anything it's going so on. So far, I I was just obviously looking before I came on the show, but I don't see that there's been any cases specifically reported uh, from travelers to the Olympics, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, it really is. I mean, and some of the people predicted that. They did these computerized yep. studies mm -hmm. and figured, don't worry about it. Yeah. And it seems to be that way, which, yeah. which makes me uh, think about, is this much ado about nothing? Well, I think they some of the models that they had used uh, predicted uh, that that was going to be Brazil's winter, so that they were expecting it to have less uh, transmission during that time, because it tends to parallel the outbreaks they have with um, dengue, which does tend to drop off um, at the certain times of year. So they that was part of the you know, statistical analysis that made them think they were going to do all right. I think the other aspect was a little knowledge ahead of time, um, you know, the attention to mosquito. Many of the athletes um, had treated their clothing with uh, permethrin um, if they were going to be involved in outdoor um, activities. Um, so I think the awareness of it, um, obviously the difference between Olympic athletes versus the people who live there is obviously they were in air-conditioned hotels um, mm -hmm. or air-conditioned boats, right, too. I guess some of them <laughs> moved off <laughs> into the cruise ships. Um, uh, as opposed, and I think that's one of the other big questions is like, why did this happen in Brazil? Um, but you've got this, maybe it was just the virus's, you know, perfect moment in time. But the other aspect of it is, is that the um, housing situation, certainly the classic, you know, uh, favelas, you know, where there's no screening, um, no air conditioning, certainly, um, uh, where people, you know, are going to have much, much more ex mosquito exposure um, than somebody, uh, obviously, in an air-conditioned hotel. And this mosquito uh, is uh, only needs a very small amount of water. They say even the, the cap of a soda bottle, uh, that just the water that would fill something as small as that to lay its eggs and, and make larvae. So, you know, you certainly have many of the rains that come through, a lot of standing water, um, huge urban populations, huge urban populations. So perhaps those three ingredients, large urban population, um, housing situation um, that, uh, you know, led to more mosquito exposure. Um, and I might add, we'll get it, I'm sure, into some of the symptoms later on, but the other uh, interesting thing about Zika was four out of five people might not know that they're infected. So usually when you're infected with a virus, you're sick, you stay home. But if four out of five people don't even know they have the virus, they're out there working, going to school, playing. And then, of course, they're getting bit at a time when they might still have the virus in their blood. Um, they're getting bit by mosquitoes and then passing it on to other people. So I think those were some of the key ingredients that really um, helped this virus kind of take a foothold and go from there. Yeah, it was interesting for me to, you know, it's been around for such a long time and then suddenly it's getting all the headlines. Before we move forward, let's go off on a slight tangent. We keep talking about mosquitoes uh, <laughs> and we know that <clears throat> malaria is a mosquito-borne uh, infection and there are many, there are a number of other mosquito-borne infections, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So can you talk about that for just a moment? And sure. why Zika is so much more important at this moment? Well, I think um, one of the Zika uh, 
uh, dramas, as I call it, um, was the, the big association with this microcephaly, where the children are born with the small heads and birth defects. And that has just been devastating. I, I think that part of the headlines uh, has been uh, that devastating effect on families, um, you know, being having children born with such devastating birth defects, and then also pregnancies ending in stillbirth and stuff like that. So I think that's really, uh, and, and I think the potential uh, of where that's going to go if you're looking at these huge numbers of cases um, and in parts of the world where we might not even be diagnosing the Zika uh, and again women who might have been exposed and not even know it because remember four out of five people don't get sick um, what downstream effect is that going to have on the population now the microcephaly does seem to be predominant in Brazil and why Brazil, Colombia seems to be having more cases of um, Guillain-Barre, which is uh, another uh, problem uh, with this virus. Of, it's an autoimmune disease that affects your nerve cells and results in weakness and paralysis. So Colombia seems to be having more issues with that. Brazil seems to be heading, getting hit hard um, with the um, uh, microcephaly. Um, one of the you mentioned the other mosquito issues. Um, so in the the big players as uh, the is the 80s mosquito, which is this one I was talking about. There's 80s aegypti and 80s albopictus, and those um, are responsible. Uh, th that mosquito is responsible for yellow transmitting yellow fever, uh, which is a disease primarily uh, limited to sub-Saharan Africa and the Amazon. Um, and then we have also the dengue virus, which we talked about uh, a little bit, but dengue stands for break bone fever. So achy bones, that's its famous. And this is, dengue's been uh, present in South America um, all along. Um, uh, and then the third one is um, uh, chikungunya. I now call them my three amigos, you know, <laughs> Zika, <laughs> dengue, and chikungunya. So uh, and chikungunya comes from an African dialect, uh, East African dialect, um, but stands for that which contorts or bends up. Um, so when you look at whether it's Zika, uh, whether it's dengue, or whether it's um, uh, dengue, we got dengue, Zika, or chikungunya, they all present pretty similarly with fever, chills, flu-like symptoms, joint pains, and rash. Um, and Zika has this also aspect of um, pink eye conjunctivitis. But when you're seeing a patient who's coming back from Brazil uh, who's sick with those symptoms, you really can't tell uh, whether it, which of those it is because they are similar. They have their nuances. You know, sometimes with dengue, you might see certain aspects of the lab work that might tip your hand to thinking, but otherwise we're ordering all three uh, tests uh, to sort of uh, distinguish which virus that might be. You mentioned malaria. Uh, that's a different mosquito. That's the Anopheles mosquito. The 80s mosquito likes to uh, bite us during the daytime, um, uh, sometimes rests sort of quietly in the house, but if it gets disturbed, um, then it will bite. Um, the Anopheles mosquito is the classic dust to dawn. It's the evening mosquito. So malaria is transmitted by that mosquito, and, and that's, um, uh, again, part, we've do, done pretty well in terms of reducing uh, some of the malaria in many parts of the world, Southeast Asia, but obviously Africa and parts of the Amazon are still um, uh, affected by malaria. And then here at home, we have one last mosquito, the Culex mosquito uh, transmits uh, West Nile virus, which I think you might have seen recently uh, a newspaper article. I even stopped and bought the newspaper that said, you know, worried about Zika? You shouldn't be. Think about West Nile. Right. So we are, West Nile is one of our viruses, um, you know, here in the, in California does tend to still have um, uh, cases of, of West Nile. So, but yes, we've got lots of mosquitoes and lots of viruses to go with mosquitoes. All right. So we're moving on now and we're back to Zika. So the way it gets transmitted to a person. Go over that for a few moments just so oh. that people can know about that and figure out how to deal yeah. with that. So when a person's sick um, with Zika, they will have the virus in their bloodstream. Um, and when the 
that virus is only in the bloodstream for a pretty limited amount of time. Um, uh, but that, if that person is bitten by a mosquito, takes a blood meal, and that mosquito can then transmit it uh, to another person. Um, so it's one of those situations where even if you had a situation where somebody was sick in bed uh, with Zika, um, actually this would pertain to dengue and chikungunya too, you might actually put a bed net on them, um, you know, over them, even though it's a daytime biting mosquito, um, to sort of prevent the transmission. Now, one of the good things about that particular mosquito for Zika is, is that we don't have that uh, mosquito yet in Santa Barbara County. Um, and so uh, that's somewhat reassurance uh, as opposed to Miami where um, there are regular populations of that um, mosquito uh, that can uh, that has set up some local transmission. But I think you're getting at too, um, one of the other unique aspects of Zika we realized was is that although it's cleared from the bloodstream, uh, pretty quickly. That's usually gone within 14 days. It does seem like the virus can stay in urine a little longer. That's probably more like 21 days. And then the big surprise was is that actually in men, it could stay in the semen. Uh, one study showed up to 82 days, um, which made us realize, oh, this is a problem. Uh, so if you look at the CDC recommendations, um, if a man has traveled, well, and I should say now, in terms of sexual transmission, uh, we do know that it's uh, all, all players, always, uh, male to male, male to female, female to male, uh, female, female, so all sexual uh, aspects. Um, but we do recommend if somebody's traveled to an endemic area, for example, let's say the Brazil uh, person that went to the Olympics, um, the CDC recommendation is, is that if nobody has any symptoms, they should have protected uh, intercourse with condoms um, uh, or abstinence um, for two months. But if they've been sick, um, they want them to uh, uh, have protected intercourse or abstinence for six months. Now, just recently, this week, the, C the WHO has kind of gone with a more conservative, just saying, we're going to tell everybody six months. Um, and then the duration of the pregnancy. So if, if a man has traveled for business to Brazil and then his wife is pregnant, um, the six months doesn't hold. It's for the duration of the pregnancy. So what we're trying, what we realized was is that um, the semen could be a reservoir um, for the virus to then cause sexual transmission. We saw that with Ebola too, but um, that, that was a big surprise. When we talk about viruses again, you know, some of us got chicken pox when we were young, and then 60 or 70 years later, suddenly we're getting shingles or herpes zoster, and, and that's another type of a virus. That seems to stay in the body and the central nervous system for yeah. 60 years or 70 years. Is there a possibility that could happen with the Zika? There probably is a possibility. We don't think that it's one of the viruses that have that latency that you're talking about. That is uh, very true for the herpes family viruses, whether it's um, herpes simplex um, and or whether it's varicella, um, which uh, causes you know varicella of uh, chickenpox and then of course varicella zoster, the shingles. So we at the moment don't have any evidence to that effect. Okay, well, that's good to know. That's good. I think that's another, um, one of the most frequent questions I get, I think, is from uh, women who are saying, well, I don't want to get pregnant now, um, but I would like to have a family someday. Does this, uh, if I go and I get Zika, is this going to affect my downstream fertility and or my ability to safely have children? Again, at this point, we have, we have no data to suggest that's the case. We think it is you, the typical thing where you don't want to have this virus when you're pregnant, <laughs> but, mm. um, you know, sort of like you don't want to get chicken pox when you're pregnant either. Um, right. But we don't have any evidence at this point to suggest any long-term problems. So now somebody gets infected with the virus. What are the things that they need to look for to suggest that they maybe need to go and get tested? 
So the big four with Zika symptoms are fever, uh, fever and chills, flu-like symptoms, as we say, uh, rash, um, joint pains, uh, and this conjunctivitis. And actually, those are the criteria for um, testing, which we'll get a little bit into, I'm sure. Um, so, But there are a myriad of other symptoms, headache, um, muscle aches. Um, uh, it's not particularly, I've had a lot of people come back from their travels with um, gastrointestinal problems, diarrhea, um, but it doesn't seem to have a predominant um, feature of that. So it's that's usually something else that's making them sick. Um, and again, so a rash, fever, joint pains after travel to an endemic area, that's that's worth a visit. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a treatment for uh, any of these, uh, my three amigos. Um, it is all just about uh, rest, you know, hydration, uh, fluids. We do let people take Tylenol for the, the pains. We tend to avoid using um, anti-inflammatories like Advil until we know that it's not a dengue infection. As I said earlier, they all look pretty similar, so you can't really tell when you're seeing somebody. Um, dengue is unique um, uh, in that it has some problems with affecting bleeding, um, so we tend to avoid the non-steroidal and aspirin medications until we've ruled out dengue. Uh, I mean, when you when you described, you know, fever, rash. Uh, Headaches, conjunctivitis—that most of the viruses that we, you know, measles, <laughs> exactly. measles, you know, everything practically. There's a lot. Well, is there a I specific might... rash? Well, it is a, a sort of a, a measles-like rash, uh, uh, as opposed to um, the the rash of chickenpox, which. Um, we, medically, we'd use the term vesicular, sort of a, sort of a, a blister type uh, rash. Um, so it's a flat um, measles-like rash. Um, but uh, yes, it, it's very uh, my um, plug to get people sometimes to take their um, flu uh, vaccine before traveling is if, if they're reluctant. Uh, I say, well, I'm a little bit of a fan of it because I said, if you come home, uh, if you get fever, chills, and flu-like symptoms, uh, I'm not going to know whether it's flu or <laughs> dengue or Zika because it all looks very similar. Um, uh, so I, you know, I encourage people to, to at least maybe reduce their chances of getting influenza mm. um, uh, if they're going into an endemic area where we're seeing some of these other viruses. Now, many people you know, come down with the flu or come down with the virus and they don't go to their doctor. They, they stay home, they take fluids and they rest and do things like that. Uh, if somebody decided not to go to their doctor, for the most part, as you said, the, you know, four out of five may not even have a, a symptom. The ones that do have symptoms, if you're not a female in a, in a pregnant state or thinking about being pregnant, um, is it something you need to go to your doctor for or can you ride it out? Oh, you absolutely can ride it out. I think, um, you know, that's certainly what's happening in many parts of the world. Um, I think um, we're, um, it seems that people are more interested here in in, in putting a name on something. Um, mm -hmm. There's, um, we've had situations where um, the testing we might as well touch on um, is mostly done through the state laboratories. Um, and we're allowed to test any pregnant woman um, who might have had exposure. So that's a, a clear-cut yes. Um, and we're allowed to send uh, the blood and samples on anybody who's been sick with potential symptoms. What the biggest request sometimes comes is from people who have traveled and, in, for example, uh, they're want to consider having a family, starting getting going on having a family, and they say, well, can you just test me so I could know? Um, and that one, we're not allowed to send uh, samples on asymptomatic patients. Um, mm. um, interestingly, I've had some situations where people didn't realize and they were in the midst of fertility, uh, expensive fertility uh, uh, workups and, and uh, and uh, in vitro, um, and went on a trip, and then 
obviously they don't want to wait the six months um, and they want it to be tested, but we are not able to test those people through the state. Um, one of the reasons they say is that even if the test was negative, they're going to still advocate that those people wait six months, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but that's frustrated a lot of people. Uh, but getting back to the sick patient, um, no, you absolutely uh, don't have to run off to your doctor. Um, uh, again, most people seem to want to know, um, but it, you know, there you will resolve. Um, I would argue um, with, if it's just fever, flu-like symptoms and joint pains, um, uh, but if it's a predominant rash, my concern just might be about dengue. Um, dengue has that special feature of um, dropping down those platelets to the point where people can get into trouble with bleeding problems. So uh, I do might recommend, you know, just to rule out dengue. Again, not that we <laughs> have any magic bullet to right. treat them, uh, but we might be a little more vigilant on, on following up uh, on their blood counts and things like that. So in the in the testing is is it strictly a blood test or is it also urine and semen and a it's, number of Okay, good. Uh yeah, so the um uh we have two kinds of testing, uh, what's called the um uh PCR, uh which actually amplifies and looks for the virus itself and that can be done on blood, uh urine and obviously in research settings I'm sure it's being done on semen as well um, but the window period for PCR testing is pretty brief so again you can um, find the virus in the blood you know well we're allowed to send specimens up to 14 days um, uh, and then uh, after uh, exposure or actually symptom onset um, and then the urine up to 21 days but then the the mainstay of testing is testing the serum, blood, for IgM antibodies. So remember, your IgM is your first uh, wave of immunoglobulins that fights uh, any infection, whether it's HIV or uh, Ebola or uh, chickenpox, like we talked about. Um, so that's what we're looking for. That's the mainstay of the testing, and that is only done on, um, for the most part, on serum. You could also test spinal fluid, but it's really not a, um, it's not a commonly, uh, test that we do. You know, when, when this, uh, first started coming out, a group of my friends, uh, most of them were emergency medicine doctors and they're all mm -hmm. skeptical, skeptical about everything. Uh, and <laughs> they felt immediately, oh, this is just a, a government thing. And, and the pharmaceutical companies <laughs> are trying to, uh, develop a vaccine. Um, is there any vaccine out yet? I know we keep hearing about uh, the work that's being done on it and that it might come out at a certain time. What is well, going on in terms of treatments? Yeah. So um, definitely there's a lot of scrambling going on uh, to make uh, an effective vaccine. But at this point, no, we have no vaccine. And truth be told, I don't see anything um, on the immediate horizon. It's it's a work in process. Okay. We, we think we're hopeful that maybe the Zika uh, will be a little bit easier. You know, they've been struggling making a dengue vaccine for quite a few years now. But the difference with dengue um, is, is that there are four serotypes or four different kinds. Um, and there's this unique problem with dengue, whereas if you get infected with one strain or serotype, um, and then later on you get infected with a second uh, strain, that you can actually get sicker the second time and more apt to go into something called dengue shock syndrome or dengue hemorrhagic fever. Now, if you manage to survive and get infected for the third time, <laughs> by that point, you have sort of more broadly neutralizing antibodies and you're probably protected. But we don't, at least with Zika, we don't have that four type, you know, four serotype problem. So maybe a little cautious optimism that uh, the vaccine work will go a little better. <laughs> when we when things like this happen on the planet, we have uh, the CDC, and then there's the World Health Organization. What other organizations are out there in the world, and how do they work together to figure things out and communicate and make uh, travel advisories, et cetera? How does that work? Well, I think, again, you mentioned the big player for us certainly is CDC and then WHO, World Health Organization. And one that's been very prominent in this uh, big outbreak is 
PAHO, as we abbreviate it, which is the Pan-American Health Organization. So that's covered all of the um, uh, South America issues. And, and they all have their own um, nuances. Um, uh, in, in the, for, like we can mention, too, that there's been a little um, new outbreak in Singapore. I don't know if you caught that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, a bit terrifying because the uh, this is you know another huge urban population um and we are wondering obviously is this the first moment it's getting a little toehold in uh, asia um and go from there um so we'll have to just see what happens on that front do they send people out, the World Health Organization and all of these, do they send people, the scientists, the virologists, how people go into these communities, collect water samples, collect blood samples, and then... And mosquitoes. And mosquitoes, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, um, the, uh, the mosquito, uh, even here in California, our uh, mosquito colleagues are, are, are very excited about this. <laughs> now, I remember we were talking about um, bees many years ago, where the African killer bees were making their way up to through South America and Central America, and then they were coming here. They were going to destroy all of our bees, and they were going to change the uh, types of bees. Are these mosquitoes capable of changing other mosquitoes? I have not seen that mentioned. I think we've, we've, there's been a lot of, um, uh, there's some interesting graphs too. You can see, um, uh, on the CDC site, which does look at the location at the moment of where Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, um, are prevalent. I love the way you say those. (laughs) <laughs> Gee, I love the way you talk. Um, so, um, and the Zika virus tends to be uh, better adapted to uh, causing trouble in the 80s uh, Egypti mosquito. But um, so, and they did models that predicted that actually uh, based on people's travel itineraries, the, the large number of people moving between uh, New York, for example, Miami, Texas and San Diego, they did predict that those and and the presence of the mosquitoes, they did predict that those were going to be the first spots that here in the United States that we might see um, uh, the virus. And so right on target, Miami came in just as they predicted. But no, I don't think, uh, I don't, I haven't heard anything about, I mean, these mosquitoes um, have their, and I don't understand that too. Why, why does the Culex mosquito uh, find a niche here in Santa Barbara, uh, whereas the 80s has decided not to join us Mm. quite yet. (laughs) We'll need a mosquito guy for that question. (laughs) Do you know one? (laughs) Many. (laughs) (laughs) So when I I was growing up, I, I actually grew up in Miami. And when I was a little kid, every once in a while in our neighborhood, there would be a truck that would come by that would be spraying all mm-hmm. of the neighborhoods with this real gas coming out. And as kids, we didn't know anything about this, so we would run behind the trucks and run in and out of the gas and do all of these things, not thinking, we had no idea what was going on. But that's, that's happening right now. There are a number of people out there that in Miami are trying to make the decision to start spraying to protect us from this virus. But at the same time that they're spraying, There's a lot of people that are worrying about the bee population and other insect populations. What's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, um, uh, it was funny that you mentioned that because just yesterday, one of the residents at Cottage Hospital gave a talk on malaria. And as we were standing around afterwards uh, talking, one of, the, um, uh, one of my ID colleagues was also mentioning that exact same scenario of being remembering as a boy, uh, almost uh, pretending it was some sort of war game as this truck came through and they'd hide in the bushes with their their guns and, and the smoke machine would come by and a spray. So, I mean, I think, you know, uh, there's some interesting memories of people. Um, so, uh, what was the question? Well, I'm, I'm concerned. You know, when you have these companies... Oh, the bees. Oh, yes, I do want to get back to the bees. Yeah, so the if Monsanto you look at- issue, you know, mm-hmm. where... I mean, I've even had a lot of people talking about the possibility that uh, the virus is because of Monsanto and things like that. Yes, yes. They've tried to, uh, I think, again, um, 
there's been various publications that have tried to um, dispel that. Um, uh, you know, I think these are these are. I'm not you know particularly involved in my. I love reading the articles. Um, I think um, the B. There is a link on the CDC website, which I again I thought was useful to. To, it goes into some of the specifics about the two agents they're anticipating using. One is a larvicide uh, that's actually a, a bacillus strain of bacteria, um, and the other um, uh, is the chemical. Um, but, you know, they talked about the bees and the fact that usually they tend to spray, I guess, dusk and dawn, um, and that's the time when the bees tend to be in their hives. Um, but they did make recommendations that, you know, for people to do commercial bee um, uh, have commercial bees that they might want to obviously move their um, hives and or cover their hives. So I think you're right. I, it's always that balance. I mean, I, I tell patients, I said, I would love to always live in a world without any chemicals. Um, mm. But when things, you know, are biting us and obviously have viruses in it that might affect our children with birth defects, you know, how do you find the compromise? I, I think it's a really challenging problem. It is. Christina. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I've been listening. Yeah. Um, is there uh, any form of um, prevention uh, away from possibly boosting your immune system before you go into those areas or, um, you know, anything that we could do away from just mosquito repellents? <laughs> Well, that's the problem. Um, you know, uh, I always think a good immune system, <laughs> a healthy immune system, a very good thing. Um, however, some of my pathogens um, uh, will take advantage of you regardless of a good immune system because it comes up a lot of times with malaria prevention medicine and people will say, well, you know, I really don't want to take the, you know, and this would be go, obviously going to a high risk area like West Africa or something like that. And they'll say, well, I really don't want to take the malaria medicines. They, they, you know, I hear they have side effects. Um, I have a really good immune system. And I always say, mm, sorry. I said, that's really good. I said, but the malaria parasite doesn't care. I said, it will kill you anyway. <laughs> and they're like, oh, darn. <laughs> uh, so I said, it's still good that you have a good immune system, but there are certain pathogens, as I say, that that's, again, uh, not enough. <laughs> so it does get back to, you know, uh, you know, bite, anti-bite measures. Um, the nice thing, uh, you can treat clothing, which I know people sometimes do like that better than rather applying, um, you know, the chemicals to, or repellents to their skin. Um, permethrin is the uh, classic ingredient, um, and you can buy clothing where it's been done for you. Um, in terms of natural oils, you know, lemon elliptus oil uh, has made the cutoff in terms of uh, uh, approved products for mosquito repellent. Um, interestingly, they don't like us to use it in children under three, and mm -hmm. I've never been able to find the exact references on why that is. We do know that um, if people tend to sometimes have more skin problems, like what we call contact dermatitis with uh, lemon elliptus oil. And I think there's some nuances in that. I think the lemon elliptus oil works maybe a little bit better for our Culex mosquitoes here, not necessarily for um, uh, the 80s mosquito. So that's the other problem is, is that, you know, you've got these different varieties oh of gosh. mosquitoes um, and some of them might be more susceptible to certain chemicals than others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what's uh, amazed me today, that the different mosquitoes carrying the different viruses is like, oh my gosh. So it's not, you know, it's like, oh, how many types of mosquitoes do we have to worry about like, now? What and what's season? biting me tonight? <laughs> you know? I know. Um, with the Zika virus, uh, away from the, you know, the abnormalities with the children and um, the, of course, stillborn children, what is there any fatalities with the adults? Or well, <clears throat> interestingly, uh, the that might be a sort of a changing mark too. Mm -hmm. um, my sort of bad joke probably on these viruses um, has always been: well, in general, you don't die; you just feel like you're going up for about a week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrible. 
joke, actually. Um, but anyway, I do get a little laugh at that. Um, but, you know, again, interestingly, in um, we are seeing um, some ep- episodes of mortality. I think the one that's very interesting um, in the United States, we've had only one death um, in our travel-associated cases, and that was actually a case in Utah that was just reported, and um, it was an elderly man. I don't have all the details, obviously. It's not been released, but um, he did uh, end up getting very ill, um, almost, you know, what we call sepsis, obviously, low blood pressure, very ill, um, and died. And he, at the time, he had an unbelievable number of um, virus, uh, over 100,000 copies, as we call it, um, unheard of number. So w- what that was and whether there's, you know, is he the tip of the iceberg in terms of us realizing that certainly in areas where we don't have the ability to to test people and they might their deaths might be being attributed to mm. other things um i think all that's going to come out gradually um with time as we dig through some of the uh statistics on that that was the one case too i don't know if you caught it in the news but that was the one case where the person who got sick that was helping care for him uh, did not have sexual contact with him, did not have, um, you know, they did, you know, they were family members, so there was some hugging and kissing, you know, on the cheek kind of thing. Um, but there, but he was quite sick and they were caring for him. Obviously, he had some loose uh, stool, diarrhea. They were helping clean him up and things like that. So um, that's the first case where we are saying hmm, we haven't we don't really know how the virus moved in that particular situation but mm. we're thinking it was unique in the sense that he had such a tremendous amount of virus so mm. i think again uh i think my uh I, i'll have to get rid of that joke i think because <laughs> it may be that uh, you you can't get quite sick no i <laughs> think and you this keep w- the joke uh, yeah I- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to uplift in some way. And, and this was the Zika virus. This was the Zika. Wow. His, yeah. So they he, have no idea. It wasn't like he traveled or anything no, like that. No, he had traveled. Oh, he, he did. Traveled. I see. He was the index case, as we called, and he had traveled, came back, but got much, much sicker. Um, and then it appears transmitted it to one of his caregivers mm. in a way that we're not quite sure. So there's been some new healthcare recommendations, obviously, if, if we were caring for people that were sick with mm. this virus, too. You mentioned the uh, stools and the diarrhea. Do you think there's a possibility it could be transmitted through the oral fecal route also? As yeah, a I think that's what they're looking at. You know, with that sort of tremendous high viral load, mm. maybe yeah. that particular situation. I'm sure they're working on it as we speak, testing mm. all those, yeah. that, any samples that they could retrieve. Right. And, and, and I you think also you mentioned, mentioned urine, too, so in the beginning... Yes, the urine, yep. we do know that we can find the virus there. Yes. Oh. Mm. You mentioned earlier about uh, one of the side uh, complications could be Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, and that could be another possibility for a reason for mortality. Yeah, the... I'm not a neurologist, but I, my understanding is the definition of Guillain-Barre is reversible, uh, True, most of the analysis. time, yeah, but. <laughs> but I think you're right. Um, uh, I think that, and then, you know, I've had a couple questions from patients saying, well, I've been reading about, again, since this is a neurotropic virus and likes the brain, um, are we going to be seeing some late neurologic uh, sequela, even in people who recover? And perhaps that's a question, too, that we just don't have the answers for now. So you're a travel and tropical medicine doctor. How are you advising people, and what is the rest of the world saying about traveling to different places, even some very place like a Singapore right now where... Yep. So they have put out um, travel advisories definitely for pregnant women. So they came out pretty strongly, uh, the CDC, uh, saying, if you're pregnant, avoid travel to Zika 
affected areas. And there's a nice map on the CDC site. You can see where you shouldn't go. And that did come out also once the Florida cases were reported that pregnant women should avoid Florida. Uh, well, that travel to Miami, which is the only part of Florida at the moment. Those are the tough questions you get when somebody says, well, um, you know, might be thinking of, uh, you know, starting a family. Uh, we were going to go to Disney Disney World in November, mm. but I wanted to go off my birth control or something like that. Those are right. like mm, those are really hard questions. Yeah, I would that's say, interesting. No, go to Disneyland instead. <laughs> <laughs> Stay with us yeah, here. That's where you can get measles. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we have no chance. We have a vaccine for that, though. Yay! <laughs> so, so I have to ask because I have not been privy to the news lately. What what is the outbreak in Singapore? Is it Zika? It is Zika. So it is Zika. And um, they're scrambling. Um, uh, Glenn asked about other ministries of health and things like that. So uh, Singapore also has their own website where they're advising uh, people uh, in Singapore. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think my number is 369, I think, cases. uh, And that's locally transmitted. So, and see, they've had tremendous trouble over the years with dengue. So this is not new for them to have trouble with, um, you know, outbreaks, but it's always been dengue. Uh, so we know the mosquitoes there and we know there's that, again, that large urban population. Um, and some of the, uh, the provenance, um, uh, I'm not going to pronounce it really, Guiyang, um, uh, I've been there and, and it is, you know, sort of a, an area where there is, um, some lack of good housing situations, same way that you could picture sort of in that northeastern part of Brazil. Mm. So they are doing everything they can to sort of get that in check. But that's um, one interesting thing I saw, which I just assumed that it was a travelers that had come back perhaps from, you know, the Brazil area. But one interesting article so far says maybe there's two variations on the Zika virus, what they call the African variant and the Asian variant. And the Brazil one has all been the Asian, but this one reference was saying that might not be the Asian strain that it might. So this virus maybe is given, give us some more surprises. Uh, Mary Louise, (laughs) I want to, I want to take advantage of you uh, with your infectious diseases and viruses and move on to another topic. But before I do that, is there anything that we haven't covered about the Zika virus that you want to talk about for another um, minute or two? Um, no, I, I wanted to make sure I got the point about the, um, uh, the, uh, sexual transmission. I think we covered that. Um, yes. and the difference between what we call travel associated cases versus local transmission. So the only local transmission, just to rest everybody's um, uh, worries, is only in Florida. So although we have cases here in California, um, uh, they're all been associated with travel. There's been no sustained local transmission. Um, Santa Barbara County, we've only had two cases, um, uh, and they've both been travel-associated cases. Um, And then I guess, um, no, I think we covered it. Excellent. So what I want to talk about now, I think I'm finding this somewhat interesting. We're talking about global warming and, and ice caps that are melting and permafrost that are melting. And there are virologists out there that are finding giant 30,000 year old viruses that have been in the permafrost in Siberia, for example, you know, for over 30,000 years. And as they're melting, they're coming back and they're actually seeing that they have the ability to infect. They have infectious possibilities, not yet for humans, but I want to know your thoughts on these Tyrannosaurus Rex viruses (laughs) that are giant. And also, you know, when we're talking about viruses, uh, giant viruses, again, they're not 700 feet long. (laughs) exactly so um fascinating again i guess another plug for more business i guess for infectious (laughs) disease here um you're in favor of global warming now no 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 but no i did find those uh interesting i think uh, you were uh you had mentioned those and i uh uh, found it interesting to look at the the 
the same researchers that actually found um, these giant viruses. And so far, they only do seem to infect um, these amoeba. Um, they have not uh, shown that they can infect humans. Um, uh, but the same researchers actually did find some, I want to say, off the coast of Chile and I think Australia. So I thought it was interesting that it wasn't only the frozen or the thawing of the permafrost. I think it's one of those things where perhaps the more you look, the more you'll find. So now that they um, are onto this idea of looking for these larger viruses, I have a feeling they'll be more found. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to study. Thing. Um, did you happen to see, I, I'll send you the link there, um, there were cases uh, in the Siberia uh, just recently um, uh, thought to be uh, the anthrax uh, related to perhaps, again, dead ant they, uh, reindeers as, uh, affected as well, but mm. perhaps the um, uh, they've had big anthrax issues in the past and perhaps the anthrax came from the thawing of some of these carcasses uh, because, of course, anthrax makes a spore and can uh, persist uh, in the environment. And, you know, they obviously you can't dig down very far in the permafrost to bury things. So as the global warming came and the rivers were rising, um, uh, some of these um, carcasses are obviously being exposed. So I think you're on the right track i think global warming might have some surprises in store uh not good we need to stop it as best we can well except you know for infectious disease people and hollywood <laughs> movie people i know i think a giant no. virus coming back from thirty thousand years to infect <laughs> all of us they've looked at smallpox too apparently up in the those very northern parts of the um uh russia and things like that uh past history was there were some huge smallpox but the one article i saw they were able to find pieces of the smallpox virus but not a fully infectious one um but that's maybe time will tell too so that would be scary that's great well we're coming right now, to all the, the smallpox is in the the freezers uh <laughs> but i guess you know the the tundra up there is a bit like a freezer that's true that nobody's got control over. <laughs> that sounds so so strange to me to find a piece of the virus and not a whole one. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> that's what's interesting about viruses, and that's what we talked about at the beginning, where they're not really organisms, but they are. They have qualities that make them an organism and qualities that make them not an organism. So... Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. Well, we're coming to the close of our show, and it's time for a health tip from our infectious disease and travel and tropical medicine doctor. Well, since we were focusing so much on mosquitoes, I have a little saying, too, in my office. I say, I, after I've gone through talking about, you know, yellow fever, malaria, and then, of course, I have to hit the dengue and chikungunya and Zika, I have a little saying that says, like, if you don't get bit, you don't get sick. <laughs> easier, easier said than done, but give it a try at least. <laughs> so the health tip is don't get bit. Don't get bit. You won't. Uh, <laughs> Christina, any uh, final thoughts? Oh, mosquitoes love me. <laughs> uh, they do like certain people. If we can figure out why they like one person more than the other. <laughs> yes. There's got to be, be well something in our system, right, that just attracts them. <laughs> and it's my, I wanted to write this up one time. Or I couldn't figure out how to do the study. But when I'm seeing a couple that are go traveling together, I often see couples and families together. It's fascinating to me because the, 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 the couple will sit there and nine times out of ten, the mosquitoes like one of them better and mm -hmm. so what is it about what attracts us to each other or something or it's fascinating. fascinating it's very rare that two people will sit there and say oh they love me it's always like like for me in my family they love my husband they have no interest in me practically <laughs> that's <laughs> that because be... that's because they know you're dealing with them <laughs> I, I can say Avoid i say her. He, he it's my repellent see i just bring him along and they just <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're bringing up a really good point. I wonder if, you know, in some of these online dating services, that should be one of the questions. <laughs> I want someone that is attracted to mosquitoes. <laughs> a new app. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Mary Louise Scully, uh, infectious disease, travel, and tropical medicine specialist, for sharing wisdom, expertise, and experience with us, giving us all sorts of information that we can use practically. I'm thankful to my teachers and all of my healers for keeping me on my journey. And thank you to Christina and Segovia and all of Yoga Hub for doing the work that you do, bringing uh, knowledge and wisdom to people around the world. Uh, and I look forward to getting together with everyone again on Magical Medical Tour as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. But until that time, thank you very much, Mary Louise. And to all of you, I wish you optimal health. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Dr. Scully. This has been so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is wonderful information. Thank you for sharing it with our global community. And thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another wonderful show. And also to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Or you can follow him on Facebook at the Medical Guide, The Medical Guide. If you would like to connect with Dr. Mary Louise Scully, please do so through her website, sansumclinic.org forward slash travel dash home. Now, this will be on our website, just in case that's a long one. So <laughs> this link will be on our website uh, connected to this show. So you can always go there and... Um, connect with her directly, especially if you're planning to travel or you have any of the concerns that we spoke about today. And uh, of course, we are always grateful for your feedback and comments and suggestions. Please give us a call or give us a comment. Give us a like on our YouTube channel or, you know, on our site. We would love it. We would love your continuous support uh, with this new system of liking or becoming a subscriber. It would help us greatly. Um, any questions at all, give us a call, 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.